I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 4. With the Shulky Conference coming up and their, their missions conference, I had thought it would be a good idea to make this Sunday a missions emphasis as well, kind of leading into that. And so this morning at Sunday school, I went ahead and, and took time so Daryl could have a break and taught on missions. And this morning, I, I want the message to be indicated that way as well, or directed that direction. If you've had any conversation of depth with me in the probably the past two months, you know that I've been convicted by the misuse of time, particularly through overscheduling. In fact, some of you are probably tired of those conversations, because I had them with everyone, not just people here. But I had it with family and I had it with friends. Wherever we went, that was what I was harping on, the busyness of our lives. This morning, I want to discuss that very topic. And I want to do so from the perspective of the Great Commission. And so as you've taken your Bibles, I do want to bring to you a message I've called the idleness of busyness when we're too busy to share. The story we're about to read spans the entire chapter of John 9. It's 41 verses. My focus is on verse 4 only. And so for the sake of time, I'm only going to read just the first few verses. But you need to know for context that the whole story extends beyond just our text. So please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he, Christ, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man, his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they kept saying to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered them, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. You may be seated. Writing in his journal, David Brainerd lamented, Oh, how precious time is, and how it pains me to see it slide away while I do so little to any good purpose. If you don't know him, David Brainerd was a missionary to the Native Americans in the Northeast. In fact, he was a missionary in the northeastern part of the United States before it was the United States. He only had a few converts in his lifetime, and so he was little known. It was not until books were written about him after his death 
that anybody really understood who he was. And those books detailed his faithfulness. Brainerd's lament for the use of time was really warranted. I can't say whether he used his time well or whether he squandered it. I don't know. But I do know this. David Brainerd fell ill and eventually died quickly thereafter at the age of 29. His concern about using his time then was very well founded. Such a perspective really comes from from two convictions. First, it comes from the conviction that the good purposes for which he wanted to spend his time came from a good God. As God had called him to serve, David Brainerd desired to use that time available to serve God's purposes. The second conviction is that he recognized the gift of time, that it was just that, a gift. Time is really a blessing bestowed upon us by our Lord. And because the Lord is perfect, his gift of time is also perfect. And yet, most of us lament that we don't have enough time. We're too busy, and we don't have enough time to do all the things we need to do, we say. Such a declaration denies both the perfection of God's gift and the goodness of God's gift. It says that we think God was insufficient in what he gave us. Tom Engstrom is a little more harsh when he says, Time in itself is really not the problem, but people who use it are. People who excuse their failures by saying, I don't have time, really are admitting to mismanagement of time. If we threw away money like we throw away time, we not only would be destitute, but we would be looked upon as wasteful. If for every minute we wasted, we threw away a dollar. But the Lord has bestowed upon us a a perfect amount of time. The question is, time for what? He has given us a perfect amount of time to do his will. Our problem is that we don't often prioritize his will. So allow me to propose to you this, that Christians are so busy that they're actually idle. In fact, we have made such an idol, I-D-O-L, we have made such an idol of busyness that the Christian labor has become idle, I-D-L-E, in the Lord's work. We're so busy with peripheral tasks that we neglect the primary task, which is what? As believers who are committed to God, Jesus has determined that task for us. We call it the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The problem is we're so busy, we don't even have time to engage in the Great Commission. We don't have time to make disciples. We're too busy that we we don't even have time to share the gospel with people, let alone spend the time that is required to make disciples. And yet being a disciple maker is the call upon every Christian. The Lord's will is that all of us, regardless of gender, age, occupation, and time, each of us is called by the Lord to make disciples for him. From the story of Jesus healing the blind man in our text in John 9, 
This morning, I want to draw out for you several principles, four in particular, of how the disciple maker prioritizes his or her time. Specifically, I want to look at verse four of chapter nine. And I want us to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and see how our king himself prioritized his time during his earthly life. That we may be encouraged to do the same. I want you to note first Christ mandate. Christ mandate. The disciple maker prioritizes his time by Christ mandate. Notice what Christ says in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me. Because it was God the Father who sent Jesus Christ. Basically, if we reduce these words that Christ says here to their most basic meaning, basically Jesus says this. We must do the will of the Father. We must do God's will. The mandate by Christ here is simply to do the work of God. The work that the Lord has already orchestrated. Jesus himself exemplifies that here as he comes across the beggar alongside the path. This was a common occurrence in the day. Even in scripture, we see many examples in which Jesus and his disciples, in just trying to get from one point to another, they come across beggars. What's interesting here, though, is it's, it's not the beggar that initiates the contact. It's the disciples. And they do so with a philosophical question. Who sinned? And how does Jesus respond? In verse 3, he says, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is a fascinating interaction, because where the disciples saw this philosophical issue, Christ saw a spiritual need. And as Jesus identifies that spiritual need, he then says, we must do the works of the Father. And then he does exactly that. He heals the man. That's what chapter 9 is. It's a testimony of this man's healing. Jesus, like God, set the agenda there. And then he simply fulfills it. He simply labors according to the works that God has proposed. He doesn't set out his own plan. Nor does he allow the disciples to set a plan. He follows the Lord's will. The lifestyle of Christ has always been determined by God's will. We see this in the first recorded words of Jesus. Do you know what those were? They're found in Luke chapter 2. And they occur when Joseph and Mary go to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And after the events, they begin their journey home, only to realize that Jesus is not with them. Kind of seems awkward. How did they not know? But I know plenty of families who have left a child behind, and not just a couple families. I was reading a story of a lady yesterday who said, I was at the park with my kids, and I watched my two kids, and They were playing, and then I saw the third kid, and he was alone. And I was kind of appalled that nobody was watching him. He was unsupervised. Where is his parents? And she realized it was her child. (laughs) It happens, and it happened here. 
And so what do they do? They rush back to find Jesus. And then they begin to admonish him. And Jesus responds in verse 49. Why are you surprised? Don't you know I must be about my father's work? That's obviously my paraphrase. It's as though Jesus would be found anywhere else. He never strays. He never questions. He simply goes forth and does the Lord's will. From this text, we get this sense that Jesus understood his purpose and his mission, which was to do the work that the Father had sent him for. And it was that work that defined all that Jesus does in his earthly ministry. It's interesting to think about that in light of who Christ is. He is the creator of all things. In him, all things hold together, as we've learned from Colossians. As God, he holds a position of sovereignty and supremacy over all of creation. But even as God himself, Jesus Christ never pushes back against the Lord's plans. He doesn't seek to alter it. He doesn't seek to avoid it. He accepts it. If the supreme Christ can submit to God the Father, who are any of us to challenge his plans? And it's easy to think, well, I don't challenge the Lord's will. I don't question it. But our schedules prove otherwise. Anytime we place our efforts, our plans over the Lord's commands, we've challenged the Lord's will. Look at James chapter 4 from our scripture reading and, and read with me what it says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We go about filling our schedules and, and making our plans, planning our lives. That's a biblical concept. We see that in Proverbs 16.9. But we do so without submitting to the Lord when he changes the schedule. We fill it with work. We fill it with our children or our grandchildren's events our to-do list. We do things like exercise a priority and ensure we have plenty of time for leisure activities. None of those are bad. In fact, a lot of them are very good when rightly prioritized. James Montgomery Boyce would ask us this, do we apply the same discipline and enthusiasm that we have in other areas of our life to the work of God? We have made such an idol of busyness that we have become idle. We have made such an emphasis on being busy that we actually accomplish less. In fact, we've become so busy, what's the first thing that we cut out? Most of us will answer church. That's true. But it's actually more severe than that. Because if we're willing to cut out our church attendance because we're so busy, what that usually means is we're also willing to cut out those habits of grace. 
the time in prayer, the time reading the Lord's word, the time of fellowship, our time with God. We neglect the spiritual life. Do you know what this means, though? It also means that those who are called to make disciples can't. And we miss out on the blessing of making disciples. If we can't attend to our own spiritual lives, how could we ever attend to the spiritual lives of another? And so we miss out on this great blessing of being used by God. We miss out on the blessing of making a difference in somebody's life with the truth of God. When our time is dominated by the physical, the temporal, we lose out on the spiritual, eternal impact. When Jesus came to the end of his life, what did he say to God the Father? In John 17, he begins his prayer. And in that prayer, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He says, basically, I did everything you sent me to do. Listen to the description put forth by Kevin DeYoung. Jesus didn't do it all. Jesus didn't meet every need. He left people waiting in line to be healed. He left one town to preach to another. He hid away to pray. He got tired. He never interacted with the vast majority of people on the planet. He spent 30 years in training and only three years in ministry. He did not try to do it all. And yet he did everything God asked him to do. As God fills our lives, he should fill our time. We labor not for the praise of people, but for the plans of God. And so a disciple maker prioritizes his time by Christ's mandate. I want you to note second, the urgency in the verse. The disciple maker prioritizes his time by Christ's urgency. Jesus not only tells the disciples that they must do the work of the Father, but they must do it while it is light, while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. Jesus Christ is the eternal Lord. He is timeless. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is not bound by time, at least not in the same way that we are. Of anyone, Jesus has the right to procrastinate, to put things off. It's certainly within his own prerogative to postpone his work. But what we get here is the opposite. Rather than delay the work for later, Christ determines to do the work now. And with that phrase, work while it is day, Jesus establishes the urgency of God's work. This is perhaps confusing until we read the next verse, which says, as long as I am in the world... I am the light of the world. This is a, there is a time when Jesus has light. He will depart and night will descend upon them. And because we have the rest of the story, we know that coming is the crucifixion of Christ and time, the time of night will descend. Even Jesus understood that his physical service on earth was limited by his physical life. This is yet another way in which our Lord is experienced 
what you and I experience in the flesh every day. Our time and our service is limited by our physical life. And yet, C.S. Lewis shares, the, the present is the only time in which any duty may be done or grace received. While the work of our hands may be delayed, the work of the Lord cannot. For the disciples said the night is coming. The night is coming when Christ will be taken away. And look what happens when he is taken away. There's a time when, at least until the Holy Spirit comes, their work becomes more difficult. Upon Christ's crucifixion, every disciple defects from the work. Some will deny him and others will flee. In John chapter 20, the disciples are found hidden in a room. And what have they done? They've locked the door. They've locked off the outside world. Even in the beginning when they're down on numbers, because they no longer have Judas, they seem to lack direction. And public opinion is definitely against them. It's at an all-time high at this point. Night has set in on their ministry And that ministry has ceased and people have turned away in belief. And then Paul tells the Romans in Romans 13, day is coming. Day is coming. That means if day is coming, it must be night. If day is coming, that's returning to Christ's return. And so now night must be upon us until that return. And we see this in, in Scripture, in passages like 1 John 1, Acts 26, even Colossians 4.10 when we get there, that, that darkness and night, they are equated to sin and unbelief. We live in a time when darkness of unbelief is spreading. We often talk about the decline of church attendance, but that's really merely a symptom of the problem. And the problem is the decline in a belief of God. It is said in the last five years that belief in God has declined roughly 10% to its lowest point ever. And that's just belief. That's not necessarily a practicing person. I don't need to point you to the examples. You can already look around and see what's going on in the world around us and determine that indeed that's true. What we have before us is an increase in unbelief and a decrease in our time to reach those unbelievers. We have more unbelievers, and yet, because the Lord's return is imminent, we have less time to reach those people. This is the urgency we see. We prioritize the Lord's work because the days are short. Paul warns the Corinthians that the appointed time has grown short. And therefore, he urges them to be expedient in fulfilling the Lord's call. Some of us here have 50 years of life. Others maybe only 20. Truly, most of us don't know how many years of life we have left. Maybe it's only 10 or 5 years. I shared with you an example of David Brainerd, who died at the age of 29. That gave him, what, 10 years of service maximum? There's a basic economics principle at hand here. The less something is available, the more valuable it becomes. Maybe you've heard about that recently. 
for our time, the less time available to us, the more valuable the time should become. The less time that is available to us, the more we tend to guard it and prioritize our use of it. It is for this reason that the future perspective, that heavenly mindset of the believer is so crucial. We must quit looking at the past, stop living only in the present, as we read in James. We must also anticipate the future. We see the redirection that established by Christ in our verse of John chapter 9. Look at the disciples and what do they do? They focused on the past. Who sinned? Past tense. But Christ reorients them towards the future, saying it's not about what happened. It's about what's going to happen. It's about what God's going to do. The idol of busyness has caused us to be idle with God's work. One day we will stand before the Lord in judgment and give an account of our time and to quote Richard Baxter, I, oh, spend your time as you would hear of it in judgment. Spend it as we would want to hear the Lord commend us, not condemn. Either we will call upon, be called upon to give an account for the time we squandered, or God will give an account for the time we spent for him. And so let us not prioritize by the urgency of our plans, but by the urgency of the Lord's promises. I want you to note third, the obstruction of Christ. The disciple maker prioritizes his time by Christ's obstruction. And I know that that's an odd phrase, but stick with me. There are always those who will seek to obstruct the advancement of Christ's message. They will seek to hinder the work of the church. A rise in unbelief, as we just talked about, will produce a rise in hostility as well. And once again, I only need to point you to our current circumstances to prove that statement. As unbelief in God has risen, so has also the animosity and the antagonism towards those that follow God has risen. In the last year, 360 million Christians, Christians being an all-inclusive term, have endured severe aggression and persecution, severe Almost 6,000 Christians were murdered for their faith. That's an increase of 24%. And 5,110 churches were attacked. That's an increase of 14% from the previous year. And such numbers do not single out how many Christians were arrested or kidnapped for their faith. But it all follows at the same levels. Scripture warns of the evil roaming around. Paul writes to the Ephesians in 5.16 that because these days are evil, believers are to make the best use of their time. Jesus illustrates that for us here. Not merely by saying, do the work of the one who sent me while it is day, but also by his attitude and actions. Because notice how Christ responds to the circumstances. After his teachings become difficult and hard in chapter 6, You'll likely remember that we're told that many of the disciples that were around him, not the 12, but the groups that were around him, deserted him. 
And then in chapter 7, not only is Jesus confronted by the unbelief of his own brothers, but the people become increasingly hostile. One man even accuses Jesus of of being demon-possessed. And that hostility gets more severe and more severe. So that by the time we arrive to chapter 8 of John, the very last verse, just before we get to our passage... It says the people are ready to stone Jesus. In fact, if you look at chapter 8, verse 59, it says they already have the stones in hand. The rising unbelief in chapter 6 culminates with the rising opposition and hostility in the following chapters. The blind man was healed in chapter 9, and he himself experiences this. He's called upon to give his testimony of what happened. And eventually, he seems to become exasperated with the questioning because he's questioned again and again and again. And he basically says, I've already told you. But their unbelief only makes them more antagonistic towards him. This is not a surprise. G.K. Beale writes, Light and darkness cannot dwell together in peaceful coexistence. Therefore, a witnessing church will be a persecuted church. But Christ never deviates from God's plan. In fact, he remains resolute. It's as though this antagonism confirms their need for what he's trying to offer them. So rather than allow them to obstruct his mission, Christ perseveres through it. Paul himself exemplifies this level of perseverance to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 4 that we read this morning, the text that says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, excuse me, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open us to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul is writing from prison because of the gospel. He's in prison because of the gospel. And writing from there, he's not deterred. He says, instead, pray for me, that God may grant me more opportunity to preach his message even more. On the verge of death in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see that Paul understands his time is limited, that he's going to suffer the ultimate punishment for his faith. And yet here in Colossians 4, 5, he writes, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. With impending death, he's still writing to make the best use of the time. It's similar to what we see in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, which we already mentioned. The increasing hostility is troublesome because it's causing people to suffer for their stand with Christ. But followers of Christ cannot expect a better treatment in the world than the treatment that their master received. It's anticipated. And so in the same way that Christ... Pressed further with his message, we too press on further with the same message. 
what the world may intend as a hindrance for the gospel, attempting to obstruct the work of Christ, is just greater evidence of their need for Christ. And so an increase in aggression towards Christ and his followers is not a time to flee, it's a time to endure. I want you to know, finally, Christ's assistance. So we have Christ's mandate, Christ's urgency, and Christ's obstruction. I want you to see now Christ's assistance. The disciple-maker prioritizes his time by Christ's assistance. Again, this seems like an odd phrase, but it is crucial to our understanding, our fulfillment of the Great Commission. When we go back to our text in John chapter 9, verse 4, Notice what Jesus says. We must work. We must work. What does he say in John 14, 12? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. As the Lord Jesus Christ works, he always incorporates others into that work. Throughout the book of John, Jesus asserts that the Father has sent him to do God's work. But he always associates the disciples with that work. His work becomes their work. And so by saying, we must work, Christ is calling upon the disciples to be part of the great commission of the Lord. But neither does he single them out. He doesn't say they must work or you must work. By saying we, Christ includes himself in that work, not excluding himself from the task at hand. Surely this should have offered great assurance to the disciples to know that the Lord that they've been serving is laboring right alongside them. Though the work may be hard, and though the hostility may increase, and the persecution may come, the Lord was there with them, laboring just as much as they were. The Great Commission even comes with this assurance. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so although we have this great assurance, Jesus says in John that he is the light, but night is coming. How do we reconcile John chapter 9 when he says, I am leaving soon, with the declaration in Matthew 28, but I am with you all the time. How can he say, I'm always with you, but I'm going to leave you soon? Well, first we must remember that the Great Commission comes after the resurrection. Indeed, there was a time when Christ left behind the people, crucified and placed in a grave. Night descended. But at the resurrection, Christ overcame death, making him able to assert, I am with you always, because never again is his death necessary. Remember also John chapter 15 and what happens there. In verse 26, Christ promises to send them a helper, the spirit of truth. Never will the disciple maker languish uncertain of what to say or what to do because the Holy Spirit is there to labor alongside. Take this a step further, though, and consider what is the context of Jesus' promise in John 15. 
When Jesus says, I will send you a helper, what does the text around it say? It's a discussion on the hatred of the world. In verse 20, he says, they persecuted him. And so he tells the disciples, be assured, because they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But then again, he gives that great assurance. But you will not be alone in that persecution. I will send you a helper, the Spirit. The problem with making disciples is that most of us are so paralyzed by fear that we do nothing. But Christ has given us assurance that we are not left to labor alone. He labors with us by the work of the Holy Spirit. We may be uncertain. We may doubt. But I've often found that simply by turning to someone and saying, can I tell you the message of Christ? You find the Lord will use you. Because indeed, he is laboring with you. And when that happens, the next time becomes easier. Maybe not necessarily easier to share, but easier to trust the Lord. And trust that he's not left us alone. This is a thing about God. He never leaves us ill-equipped. The disciple-maker prioritizes his time by Christ's assistance. If Christ has made himself available to us to do the work of the Father who sent him, should we not also make ourselves available to him for that work? We prioritize our time for the Great Commission by making ourselves available to be part of the Great Commission. According to J. Oswald Sanders, time cannot be hoarded, only spent well. He's not wrong in those words. As a gift from our Lord, time (coughs) is a manner by which the Lord has chosen to bless us. Time is a blessing from God. He has given it to us, and because it comes from him, certainly he has the right to set the priorities for us then. In John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus exemplifies those four priorities, four principles, how to manage our time. First, by his mandate. The use of our time is determined by our obedience to the great commission that he set forth. Second, by his urgency. We maintain a level of urgency, hurrying along because the time to accomplish that mandate is so short. And we take lessons from his obstructions. While many sought to hinder the Lord's work, we do as Christ does and and continue on. And finally, we prioritize the Great Commission because of his assistance, because he has promised to go with us in that work. There's a make-believe story of a firefighter who, upon receiving the call of a blaze at a home, he shows up, but he never gets out of the truck. As the fire rages on, growing worse and worse, he continues to sit there. Paralyzed by fear of, of what may happen, he's unwilling to step forward. And when it's all said and done, a family of four and their two pets die. What would you expect to happen in those circumstances? As people who desire justice, we would expect the firefighter to be held accountable for his actions. And in fact, we've seen circumstances in which the worker, whether it be firemen, policemen, 
a medical worker, a doctor, they have neglected their task. And not only do they lose their job, but often they're brought into court and stood before a judge and a jury. And a trial ensues, and that person is is charged with some form of negligent homicide. Negligent in his work, a dereliction of duty. The individual is guilty. We would expect nothing less. Isn't that what we do with the Great Commission? Our time is so valuable that we spend it on everything. But we do it at the expense of fulfilling our duty to make disciples. And we do so while people are dying. If the Lord placed us in the same courtroom setting as the fireman was, some of us would probably hope for reprieve based on the justification, well, I just didn't have enough time. We must master our minutes or we will become slaves to them. We must use our time or our time will use us. Let's pray. Father, indeed, you are a good and perfect God. And as a good and perfect God, every, every gift that comes down from you is also good and perfect. You have bestowed upon us and blessed us with this gift of time, Lord. Father, we're so grateful that although it is not something you need because you're beyond time, Lord, you knew we did, and so it is a gift for us. Lord, may we see it just as that, as a gift from you. May we treat it as precious as it is from your hands. And Father, may we prioritize it in the same way that your son did. According to your mandate, according to the Great Commission, may we not make an idol of busyness that we actually become idle in your work. And so, Father, help us to to set our priorities according to your word, according to your will, according to your work. We commit all of these things to you in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.